What is some of the best evidence contradicting the official account of 9-11? What is the evidence that terrorist entities like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant were not only created but continue to be supported by U.S. intelligence agencies? How do these entities serve U.S. government interests? And why has the 9-11 Truth movement failed to make a meaningful impact on the political landscape? This week, on the 13th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, we hear from two individuals among the most committed to investigating the flaws and the falsehoods in the official 9-11 account. Elizabeth Woodsworth of the 9-11 Consensus Panel and Michelle Chosodovsky, Director and Founder of the Center for Research on Globalization. On today's program, 9-11 meets ISIL. Can the truth set us free? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 12, 2014. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, Global Research. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Polish-American intellectual Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was U.S. President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor and an architect behind the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, has actually advocated for the destruction of Russia through gradual disintegration and devolution. He has stipulated that, quote, a more decentralized Russia would be less susceptible to imperial mobilization, unquote. In other words, if the U.S. divides Russia up, Moscow would not be able to challenge Washington. These views are not merely constrained to some academics' ivory tower or to detached think tanks. They have the backing of governments and have even cultivated adherents. That is from the article, Redrawing the Map of the Russian Federation, Partitioning Russia After World War III, by Mahdi Darius Nazamroya posted September 10th, originally appearing at the Strategic Culture Foundation online journal. As disappearing airliners continue to dominate the headlines, new evidence is surfacing to negate official claims that the black boxes from the 9-11 planes were never found. Firemen working at the Ground Zero in October 2001 claimed to have found three of the four virtually indestructible boxes. The telltale flight Recorder pinging had earlier been reported by the director of the New York State Emergency Management Office and was confirmed by radio frequency detectors. This information is presented by the 24-member 9-11 consensus panel, which uses a rigorous medical model to establish its evidence. The panel has produced over a three-year period 44 peer-reviewed consensus points refuting official claims concerning the events of September 11, 2001. That's from the article, 
No airliner black boxes found at the World Trade Center. Senior officials dispute official 9-11 claim by consensus911.org. The evidence is so overwhelming that 9-11 was a false flag op that any legitimate court of law, are there any, willing to take testimony from the experts would easily determine the falsity of the official version. Why do otherwise good people refuse to look at or believe the evidence? Or in the situation that might be more likely to be the case, if these good people have actually spent the few hours necessary to adequately examine the evidence, why do they then refuse to acknowledge the existence of the evidence that totally disproves the official story that they have somehow come to believe? If a rare person of conscience who was also in a position of power, chooses to resist the real powers that be, as was the case with JFK, MLK, RFK, and Senator Paul Wellstone, there would be serious consequences. But the psychology of why otherwise good people decide to maintain their silence in the face of unwelcome truths has many ramifications, which I will address more thoroughly in a future column. That's from the Review article, New Documentary on September 11, 2001, False Flag, 9-11 9-11 in the Academic Community by Dr. Gary G. Coles, posted September 10th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On this week's Global Research News Hour, we mark the 13th anniversary of the attacks on the Pentagon and World Trade Center towers, the event we now call 9-11. Those attacks immediately claimed the lives of close to 3,000 people. Among the casualties are the more than 1,100 first responders who contracted cancer related to the Trade Center dust, not to mention the hundreds of thousands estimated to have died in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq waged allegedly in response to the attacks. If it is true, as numerous independent researchers argue, that 9-11 was fabricated to justify a campaign of military aggression abroad and repression at home, then the truth should remove the justification for these initiatives. What is the best evidence of the faulty 9-11 narrative, and why has 9-11 truth not helped change the political landscape in a meaningful way? Elizabeth Woodworth is a retired health sciences librarian, writer, and researcher. She's a coordinator and co-founder of the 9-11 Consensus Panel and a regular contributor to Global Research. She joins us from uh, the Gulf Islands in British Columbia, Canada. Good morning, Elizabeth Woodworth, and welcome again to the Global Research News Hour. Good morning, Michael. It's nice to be on again. Uh, Ms. Woodworth, what is the 9-11 Consensus Panel, and what distinguishes it from other groupings of professionals within the 9-11 Truth Movement? Well, uh, the, David Ray Griffin, who's written 10 books on 9-11, I guess he's the most best-known scholar we have in the Truth Movement. Uh, he was associated with a number of uh, professional groups who were uh, forming themselves up to to uh, uh, present the evidence on 9-11 from their perspectives. And that included uh, groups like uh, uh, firefighters, um, scholars, um, 
not engineers. That was done by Richard Gage after he heard uh, David Griffin. Um, intelligence officers, uh, religious leaders, a lot of uh, religious people, religious um, leaders are very concerned about 9-11 and the moral issues involved. So D- David got was uh, encouraging these groups, but we decided that it would be best to have an overarching uh, uh, organization that would bring evidence and assess evidence from all kinds of perspectives. So three years ago, he and I, who had been working on seven or eight of his books, we formed the 9-11 Consensus Panel, which has uh, 24 members of, uh, as I said, uh, a full spectrum of people, academics, physicists, uh, professors, journalists, lawyers, a uh, medical doctor, a psychologist, engineers. So we have uh, all those kinds of expertise, and we decided to use a very rigorous medical model, uh, which is used by physicians, the whole medical community, uh, in arriving at best evidence to guide physicians in, throughout the world in what is currently known uh, um, as the best evidence. And they use something called the Delphi method to do this in which, uh, say, say there, there's a, a special group of um, um, medical specialists uh, in the area of diabetes and uh, current diabetic um, uh, diagnosis and, and therapy, and they want to provide what is currently the best evidence. They'll get maybe a dozen people, uh, and they can be located anywhere in the world, and they will, will create a draft. Somebody will create a draft of what looks like it's the best evidence as of now, and that'll go out to this panel of 12 to 20 people, and they're not allowed to talk to each other. They each refine that draft and return it to the central place, and in the case of the 9-11 consensus panel, that is David Griffin and myself. I'm a medical research librarian, so we have the skill to to evaluate the, the, um, the quality of the evidence, and uh, uh, so then... The, all, the answers all come back to the central place and uh, the, 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 the coordinators, and they, they um, update um, the feedback and send it out a second time. And this process is repeated of refinement, feedback and refinement, for perhaps three rounds until everybody agrees that it's about as good as it could be. And the most important thing is that the panelists cannot talk to each other or communicate in any way while they're evaluating that evidence. And that takes out the possibility that dominant interests can, can um, you know, stronger people with stronger personalities and backgrounds can dominate the, the process. So it's a very democratic, it's like voting, really. It's a democratic process where you're not afraid to speak your mind. And so the 9-11 consensus panel, using this method drawn from medicine, has, uh, over a three-year period, uh, produced 44 consensus points of what we call the best evidence um, that's been developed so far against 44 claims of the official story. And those 44 points are broken down into nine categories? Yes, there. I think there are nine. If you go to the, the website consensus911.org, 
and look under the left sidebar, you'll see consensus points there. And we've broken them down into points about the Twin Towers, about World Trade Center 7, about the flights, the phone calls, and the military, political and military leaders that day. There were, we have, I think, eight or nine points now on the activities of, of the top brass. And, uh, if you look into that, like, the, it's quite interesting that the, the uh, 9-11, uh, commission report, um, the 9-11 commission, uh, they, they had, a, I think, about a dozen commissioners and they had two, uh, two heads to the, to the commission, uh, Keene and Hamilton. And they put at, the, when the commission finished its work, they filed all the, the interviews that they had in the, um, National Archives and Records Service, NARA. And, uh, the, but the, you can go there and you can look at their catalog and some of them are full text, but some people have gone into the, those archives and they've scanned them all and put them up under scribed.com, which is a sort of a big um, document dump site on the Internet that I think you have to pay to use it. So a lot of the documents that NARA didn't actually put up full text are now available and unscribed. And I've found documents there that nobody has ever uh, referred to. Uh, interviews from people, like they interviewed all kinds of people that were involved in the FAA and NIST, and uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology. Just, All the people who were involved in the official positions that day, which failed to intercept those four airliners. So you can tell if a document's being referred to by uh, taking the URL from that document, plugging it into Google, and searching it. If it doesn't come up, it means nobody's even referred to it once on the Internet. So we've been using these documents as some of our best evidence, because this is new evidence that that um, that just hasn't been brought to bear on the issue so that's, far. Yeah, that's very interesting. But I just to, just to clarify, are we talking about like just evidence that's uh, I, I you know like deliberately covered up, covered up, or or de facto no, covered I don't up? Think, you know, it's interesting. For a long time, it looked as if the commission, the nine eleven commission, was trying to hide things. Uh, uh, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but. Right now, the 9-11, both 9-11 commissioners are coming out very strongly in support of the new movement to, um, to declassify the 28 pages from the commission before the one, like before there was a, a formal commission struck, there was a bipartisan joint investigation from both houses of the Congress in 2002. And, uh, that was, um, uh, uh, chaired by Senator Bob Graham, and they released that. It was a huge uh, report, about 800 or 900 pages, but there are 28 pages in that report that were never um, uh, uh, never released. Um, they've, they've just been uh, buried, and the, the only way you can get to, to see them at all is if you're a, a member of the Congress and you... Um, um, you you go down into underneath the uh, Capitol. There's a place where a room or a guarded room where you can see these documents if if um, it's soundproof, and uh, you can see you can see the 28 redacted pages uh, as long as you don't take any notes or photographs or anything like that. So they're really top secret. 
And I guess about, um, oh, I think about a dozen people have seen them now, besides the, the people who actually worked on them. And recently, in the, since December, there's been a, quite a strong movement starting to declassify those documents because apparently they deal with Saudi government involvement in helping to finance the hijackers who had come into Los Angeles and San Diego to train on how to use the airplanes. Now, we in the consensus panel don't believe that the hijackers were involved. We can't find any actual proof of hijackers. They say that they were on the um, on the manifest for the airplanes, but they're not. We haven't seen a, um, uh, a, a an actual manifest with their names on. Um, they say that the people were making cell phone calls from the airline liners, but they were too high to make cell phone calls. Um, they they have shown video evidence, what is purported to be video evidence of the hijackers in the airports, but they're those. The uh, the photograph the video evidence is not time stamped or date stamped, which is extremely unusual. Um, so there's nothing that really shows that the hijackers were actually in those cockpits commandeering those planes. Miss Woodworth, I just wanted to ask because you you put out a recent release uh, that uh, focused on the uh, just uh, recently about uh, some of the new. Um, evidence uh, talking about the black boxes and yes, the, the 9/11 flight. Yes, I'm kind of building up to that. Okay, um, sorry. Uh, but and the next, the last thing I was going to say before turning to that is that none of the pilots of the eight pilots squawked the hijack code, uh, which is just like hitting four digits, 7500. And there's lots of times to squawk the hijack code if somebody's trying to break into your cockpit. Um, and then they, you know, and then they have to get up to the pilots. They have to sort of get around the, the obstructions, the seats and everything to get up to them. So there is time to do that. And that's very strange. Now, the next thing, now this is where we launch off into our four new consensus panel points. Um, it's come to our attention that there is actually no means of proof as to how to turn off the radar that's signals that are emanating from the plane. Like, as far as the ground people were concerned, it looked as if the transponders, which send out those signals, had been turned off for three of the planes, and and one of the transponders changed its channel. But to prove that that happened manually uh, is not possible, as far as we can see. There's there's different places that it that you might be able to find it, like in the flight data recorders. There's a, a parameter there, um, uh, and and there has been no proof offered that they were manually turned off and uh, especially not manually turned off by alleged hijackers. So if there were proof of that, it would be in the black boxes because one of the black boxes is a, a flight data recorder and the other is a cockpit voice recorder. And both those boxes are carried in the rear, the tail of the plane, so that if there's an impact, they're less like, they're more likely to survive it. And the official story has made it very clear that there were no black boxes found in the World Trade Center at all. And just to show you how how um, unusual that is, um, there, on Wikipedia, if you look under black boxes, uh, survivability, there have only been maybe a dozen 
or 20 in the whole history of aviation that haven't survived. And most of those have been over very deep water where they couldn't get down to find them. Um, one was at the top of a mountain in South America in the Andes, very high up. But generally speaking, um, they, they survive. And the fact that they say they didn't survive the 9-11 attacks, um, I mean, they, they were able to, to analyze the DNA from the people, for example. Now that's, that just doesn't sound right when you, when these boxes will withstand enormous heat. And, uh, so what we have found, uh, to actually prove that the black boxes were found is that, um, this information's been around for a while, that, that a fireman and a, a, a volunteer worker were, uh, going through the debris pile in October and they apparently found three out of four of the black boxes. But the, uh, and apparently somebody else said in the, uh, that the FBI had them. I think somebody in the National Transportation Safety Board said, yes, they do exist, but we don't have them. The FBI has them. And since then, uh, going through these documents I was telling you about, um, I just uh, came across a couple of things that indicate for sure that they were that they they were found. And one is that um, the state emergency uh, director of New York, not the city, the city office of emergency uh, management came under uh, the mayor's office, Mayor Giuliani, but the state office. The the uh, the man there in charge of emergency management um, sent a letter, and it's it's on the consensus panel website. The the letter itself, you can read it. He sent a letter in late September saying that they had found the black boxes. Um, so that's one piece of evidence from a high positioned uh, uh, individual. And another was the man that ran the electronics firm that picked up the communication signals. And he said it in a statement that was just intended to show uh, the kind of work they did and that they were rather proud of having um, uh, been part of that, the, the, the um, electronics that, that heard the pinging, pinging coming from the uh, World Trade Center black boxes. So there's a quite a lot of evidence there to show you that they do have the black boxes and they have not released the information. And if they had the information, then they could prove that the transponders were turned off by hijackers. Ms. Woodworth, so everything is just falling apart. Like yeah. The whole official story is falling apart. And one reason why it's falling apart is that there's been so much truth being spoken about, and now it's kind of a joke. Are you, uh, like I read on the Internet yesterday, this woman said, is it okay to, to date a 9-11 truther? Or, or, and, and there was a big discussion. Like, everybody knows what a 9-11 truther is. So the yeah. government knows what a 9-11 truther is. Uh, well, some people have said that the 9-11 truth movement has actually taken over from the peace movement. So if they had this evidence, they would most definitely quell all the opposition and doubt and suspicion. But yeah. they don't have the evidence. It reminds me of uh, the a, a lot of the the one of the things that's been known for a while now within the movement is that the, the debris from the the trade center towers were taken away and and moved off to to China and Asia uh, and basically uh, it was all under the uh, a company known as Con 
controlled demolition, I, I think it was. Yes. I mean, basically, the whole idea, as with the black boxes, the evidence is being hidden. Indeed. You know? so, and I understand that it was the mayor of New York City at the time, uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who did order them to uh, take this the, the crime scene, basically, and, and haul it away. These 40-foot-long girders, they took them away on flatbed trucks. And uh, they took them, they loaded them onto ships and got them out of the country. So, but there is some of that metal left. And um, in our last set of consensus points from June, uh, we showed uh, the, the head investigator from the National Institute of Standards of Technology, and they're the ones that wrote all the reports about how the buildings fell, the official mm. reports. And Dr. John Gross, G-R-O-S-S, said that he didn't know anything about um, molten steel from the the uh, uh, the you, there shouldn't have been molten steel because uh, according to the official story the, the the temperatures weren't high enough from kerosene like if you imagine kerosene um, in your fireplace grid it, it would never melt it right mm-hmm. so um, they said no 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 there the but there is a picture of him standing we found this on a freedom of information request uh, not we but somebody else found it. A picture of Dr. Uh, John Gross standing, holding one of these girders that's melted at the end in his hand. So that was an outright lie. No, uh, Miss Woodworth. I mean, I'm just running a bit out of time, but I, I like. I just wanted you to address the, the point that I think that the 9/11 truth, but frankly, has been very effective at, at communicating to a mass audience, in spite of the obstacles. But it doesn't seem to be having a, a political impact. You know, I mean, we just saw Barack Obama with his yeah. speech about how we have to go after the terrorists, and the war on terrorism. That whole meme still seems to persist. What What do you think is is the missing ingredient? What What is it going to take for the truth to move into the realm of of, of of practically addressing the injustice? Well, I think that that the media needs to understand that there's a difference between real evidence and speculation. And what's been happening so far is that a lot of people who are angry with the government for many reasons, are shaking their fist and presenting, you know, they're coming at it from, from not from um, an equal position, but they're shaking their fist in anger at the government, and they're presenting all kinds of, maybe this happened, or there's evidence this could have happened, and that could have happened. And because people are, are, are some of these theories are quite outlandish, things that you would think, no, no, these people are, are really not uh, uh, very credible. And so what happens is that the, all the people who, who, who want to preserve the status quo, who don't want these doubts to be lingering, they point to these other uh, less credible sources and say, that's the 9-11 truth movement. All these speculators are the people that we find uh, crazy, tinfoil hat wackos. They will not look, they will not mention or have a link to the, to the 9-11 consensus panel, which is real evidence. Um, all the real evidence places, like uh, architects and engineers are the best at breaking through because they've raised a lot of money. They've, they've got a really good organization there and they're, they're, uh, they're, they've been putting up these billboards in, outside, uh, the Times, you know, in, in Times Square and they get it. They have, the media just can't ignore them because of the, the very clever and, um, intelligent, um, uh, uh, media, uh, 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 events yeah. that they schedule. If you can't ignore them, you just make fun of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and then we have scholars for 9-11 Truth. There's, there's scientists for 9-11 Truth. They're really good, too. 
So, but but uh, I know for sure that the consensus panel, if I post um, on a, a big um, newspaper in the comments, uh, if I post a consensus point there, they'll close down the comment right away. <laughs> they don't want that showing up in their newspaper. It's too credible. Well, on that point, uh, Miss Woodworth, I think we'll have to go. But uh, again, I, I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, also uh, remind listeners that the website is your the website where you can get a lot of these information uh, about the talking points. It's consensus nine one one dot org. That's exactly right. Okay. And thank you very much, Michael, for the opportunity to to be heard on on your station. I enjoy speaking to you. Yes, and, and me as well. And, and thank you for your regular contributions to the website. <laughs> okay, thanks for all you do. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And so I've been speaking with uh, Elizabeth Woodworth, uh, as a retired health sciences librarian and the co-founder and coordinator of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Jihad, the repercussion and equation of a Russian invasion can only be bad. Open up your eyes and with no surprise you'll find these CIA funded rebels arrange weapon transfers by the Chinese. So much for freeing our minds and aligning our chakras. Along came Ronald Reagan and his Iran Contras. Committee on Foreign Relations made allegations of cocaine distribution. Trading arms for hostages, no pain, no gain was his solution. For the bad man who'd been hiding Bin Laden and his freedom fighters. It's time for Babylon to burn, so let me see them lighters. They were armed by the CIA, trained by the CIA, funded by the CIA, must be the CIA. Armed by the CIA, trained by the CIA, funded by the CIA, must be the CIA. These crack, 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 crackers in America. So crack, 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 crack in America. These crack, 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 crackers in America. So crack, 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 crack in America. It was 1987 when Oliver North was investigated, but his role in the Cobra Cobra Arms operation was underestimated. It was proven that these thugs were moving drugs to fund the Contra Army. Why would these crackers in America want to harm you? Want to harm me? Night flights every five minutes without lights flown into Arkansas. This Doctrine of rapid dominance, what's better known is shocking off. Former Governor Bill Clinton, one of America's future presidents, made no attempt to help with investigations despite all the evidence. So let me do my best to suggest these dangerous men are shitty. For steadily supplying crack to blacks in Los Angeles is in a city. So whether or not you blame Reagan or choose, as we say, Tricky Dicky's boss, they would never take responsibility to rather accuse free rate. They were armed by the CIA, trained by the CIA, funded by the CIA, must be the CIA. Armed by the CIA, trained by the CIA, funded by the CIA, must be the CIA. These crack, 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 crackers in America. So crack, 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 crack in America. These crack, 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 crackers in America. So crack, 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 crack in America. Political propaganda, brainwashed education, colonial occupation. 
mean slave plantations, western invasions and masonic aprons, pilgrims of native genocide and enslavement, Babylon the great mystery, mother of white supremacy, Republican demonocracy, concoctors of hypocrisy, murderers and liars, coke and gun suppliers, phone taps and wires, must be the CIA, assassins so fearless, go ask Chuck Barris, who's the real terrorist, must be the CIA, smugglers and presidents surveilling your residence, planting some evidence, must be the CIA, Operation Iraqi Liberation From Chevron to Exxon It's Nazi occupation We have little patience For these agents of war So no wonder why we call The Queen of London a whore From their album Evil Politicians That was the group Conspirituality With Crackers in America Now we turn to One of the leading And first critics Of the original 9-11 narrative I'm joined right now by Michel Chosodovsky. He is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Ottawa, founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, and editor of the globalresearch.ca website. And he's the award-winning author of The Globalization of Poverty in the New World Order and America's War on Terrorism. I reached him at his home in Montreal. Good afternoon, Professor Chosodovsky. Good afternoon. Delighted to be on the... On the program. Much of the world does recognize Osama bin Laden's role as a U.S. Uh, as having been recruited by the C- by the CIA in the 1980s and the whole uh, the, the involvement in the Soviet-Afghan war. But the official story says that he cut his ties with the U.S. establishment, you know, around the time of the Persian Gulf War, concerned about Saudi Arabian bases. Why is it not possible that he could have, I mean, with all that infrastructure in place, but he could not have taken, created his own offshoot that uh, somehow uh, perplexes and baffles uh, the CIA? I mean, the the whole blowback theory, why is that uh, something that's not uh, very plausible? Well, it's not plausible for for many reasons, but... uh My investigation, particularly pertaining, let's say, to the Balkans, shows that al-Qaeda was used as a CIA asset throughout the 1990s, first in Bosnia and subsequently in Kosovo and then in Macedonia. And we have ample evidence to the fact that the Clinton administration was working hand-in-glove with al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was instrumental... In the, in the training uh, of, the, uh, of the Bosnian Muslim army, there were al-Qaeda units in, in, uh, in Bosnia, there were recruitment of Mujahideen, all of this was a CIA operation at the time. And then you, the same thing in Kosovo, you had the Kosovo Liberation Army, uh, which was uh, also in liaison with al-Qaeda, And then subsequently, and this happened barely a few months before 9-11, you had a situation where al-Qaeda units were caught red-handed in Macedonia, and that was in 2001, um, together with their U.S. military advisors from uh, from Military Professional Resources Incorporated, which is a mercenary company. And we have ample evidence that the blowback is a fabrication and that al-Qaeda has remained uh, throughout this whole period up to the present a CIA uh, asset. I should say, broadly speaking, it's not only the CIA, it's also British 
MI6 and it's also the Israeli Mossad, which have been implicated in one form or another in supporting Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations in Iraq, in Syria, in Somalia, in Yemen. And this is amply documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al-Qaeda is, is not a blowback to the Soviet-Afghan war. The blowback in intelligence parlance means that the intelligence asset goes against its sponsors. Uh, these are instruments of U.S. intelligence they used to, um, you know, to undertake a, a, a military intelligence agenda. We have the situation of, of ISIL or ISIS, the Islamic State, which has its roots in Iraq and Syria, This entity has been supported and financed by U.S. intelligence. Um, The training is channeled through Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The Pakistani ISI, uh, as we we discussed earlier, uh, has always been a a go-between in the process of training um, rebel leaders on behalf of U.S. intelligence. Yeah, so the U.S. doesn't finance them directly. They go through the ISI, as I understand it. Well, in the, let's say in the heyday of the Soviet-Afghan war, it was the ISI which was in charge of recruiting um, Mujahideen. Uh, it was the ISI which uh, set up the, the training programs, the indoctrination but it was done in, in coordination with, uh, with Washington, in close coordination, and they don't deny it, actually. Uh, we, we have this case where, in fact, the textbooks of religious indoctrination, were, they were, they were uh, entrusted to the University of Nebraska, and then they were shipped to Afghanistan. And uh, essentially, many of the leaders of Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations are, were trained in CIA camps in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, going back to the heyday of the Soviet-Afghan war. And this, this prevailed during the 1990s, uh, and, and what you see emerging is a, is a network of entities which are covertly supported by Western intelligence, financed by Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, but we even have reports, more recent reports, which point to the role of, of the Atlantic Alliance, namely NATO, in recruiting and training the terrorists. And specifically, uh, and this is, of course, relevant to the discussion on, on what's going on in, in, uh, you know, in Syria at the moment, we have a situation where NATO is actually recruiting Mujahideen in liaison with the Turkish High Command, and these Mujahideen are then uh, used to wage uh, an insurrection directed against uh, the government of Bashar al-Assad. So that that mechanism today is used to finance al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations such as al-Nusra, all the ISIS, um, and uh, there's ample documentation to the effect 
that the United States is behind this process. Okay, could you explain then, like, what is the goal in the case of ICE, ISIS or ISIL? Uh, the uh, because they they seem to be, uh, you know, wreaking havoc through the region. And how, how? What exactly are the United States and NATO trying to achieve with the introduction of these very these terrorist proxies that they are apparently financing and, and supporting? Well, it's a very insidious and diabolical project because on the one hand, they have financed and trained uh, a terrorist organization uh, using their allies in the, in the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, but also with the input of Israel and Turkey. And then these organizations are involved in terrorist acts against the secular government of Bashar al-Assad. Um, throughout the, the last few years, uh, aid, military aid, has been channeled to these rebels, and in some cases quite openly. Uh, so that we don't... We, we have ample evidence of the fact that ISIL is a creation of... U.S. intelligence. I guess the question I have, though, is, I mean, the, the, in, in, in Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein was overthrown because he wasn't really fulfilling the, the strategic aims of the United States and, and replaced with a more compliant government, or, or so I thought. Why, why is it better to have ISIL in there than the, uh, the, the previous U.S. puppet regime? Well, I think the agenda of the United States is to transform countries into territories. The purpose of doing that is essentially to prevent the, the development of a national project which could possibly go against the interests of the United States. The, the objective is to confiscate the, the wealth and resources of that country, of course, including its oil reserves. ISIS is a creation of U.S. intelligence, and now it is being used as an instrument of destabilization and destruction. Uh, and um, it is also being presented as an independent public opinion, as some kind of independent entity. And when President Obama says we have to go after IS, uh, ISIS, uh, it, 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 it suggests that there's some kind of a humanitarian mandate to that policy of going after the terrorists. But what people do not understand is that the United States has created those terrorists and that those terrorists are actually integrated by special forces, okay, which are communicating with the, with the U.S. military. This is well documented because many of the... When, when the Syria conducted raids against the terrorists in northern Syria, they arrested a number of special forces, which happened to be Western uh, advisors, and then many of those were released. But they are using this, uh, mandate to go after the terrorists to justify a bombing campaign against Iraq and possibly even against Syria. And I should emphasize that the bombing, the bombing of Iraq will not target the terrorists. Quite the opposite. The terrorists are intelligence assets. You don't want to destroy them. 
The terrorists are there precisely to create havoc, to prevent the resistance movement, to, to, to rebuild Iraq, and to create a situation where Iraq no longer exists as, a, as an entity, as a political entity, uh, thereby, uh, thereby leading the way into a process of balkanization of the entire region. Your website uh, and you personally have been doing what you can to to you know expose the truth about the uh, the, the fabricated nature of the war on terrorism uh, from uh, you know Kosovo to 9/11 right up to today with ISIS. What prospect is there realistically of uh, of un of changing that consensus? I mean, beyond informing ourselves, uh, like what? How can we effect real change that will right and correct the situation? Well, I would get back to the important and central um, concept of 9-11 truth, because um, we're dealing essentially with an inquisitorial doctrine, um, and an inquisitorial doctrine is based on a lie. Uh, in other words, we have to go after these evil people. Uh, and uh, to break down this inquisitorial doctrine, you have to unco- you have to break the lie, so to speak. The li- the consensus at this very moment is a lie. If you want to to break it, you have to you have to reveal the truth, and you have to spread the truth concerning these 9-11 attacks, because ultimately that's the building block. And without 9-11, there's no military doctrine. There's no war on terrorism. There's no justification for, for, going, for invading countries. I wonder, uh, though, about... The, the concept, and, and maybe I'm, I'm taking you a little out of your realm of expertise here, but the whole concept of learned helplessness, the idea is that you can know the truth about 9-11, but to, be too scared to do anything about it. Like, is there a possibility that you could have the bulk of uh, the American public knowledgeable about what really happened? Because I, I hear a lot of cynicism about people in government, uh, you know, in, in, whether it's in Canada or the United States, but they don't actually do anything about it. You know what I mean? Well, I think what you're what you're suggesting is, is essentially the the process whereby the lie becomes the truth, so to speak. With everybody, everybody knows it's a lie, but then then nonetheless they support it because it's dictated from people in high office and it's part of a state doctrine, and that's what I would describe as as the American Inquisition, is an inquisitorial doctrine. You don't question it, okay? So the lie becomes the truth, and, and then people realize that, that the lie prevails, but they still support it because it's part of a consensus, and it's, it's dictated by the media, by the governments, by society in general. But that, that um, consensus is extremely fragile because it could be reversed, and if it is reversed, well then uh, the people in high office uh, who are behind the war on terrorism 
simply don't have a leg to stand on. The whole, the whole construct collapses like a deck of cards. Mm. And uh, that is what is required. It's to break the consensus and to show that, first of all, without, first of all, the 9-11 attacks were not an attack from abroad, as claimed by, the, by NATO. Um, this was a terrorist undertaking. It was a false flag. It emanated from within the U.S. state apparatus. Uh, indeed, an investigation is required. But it also, um, it, you know, if we reverse, if we, if we establish 9-11 truth, we also break the legitimacy of, of the military agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at Pentagon documents, you can see, you can read it very carefully, they, that the war on terrorism is really very central to justifying military intervention on humanitarian grounds. Professor Chostovsky, has there been any development in the last 13 years that leads you to believe that uh, not only that the consensus can be broken, but that change is on the horizon, that these elite imperialist savages can be contained, overthrown, and, uh, and that we're not just a bunch of people shouting truth on the sidelines? Well, what... what has anything happened over the last 13 years that will that give you some comfort that actually th that we're making progress? If we look at the period uh, extending from 2001 to the present, I think we have to first of all acknowledge the fact that the anti-war movement has gone backwards. We had a significant um, movement in 2002-2003 directed against the war on, on Iraq, but in the wake of 2003, the anti-war movement more or less um, subsided. There, was, there were no um, interventions on the part of civil society directed against governments pertaining to subsequent wars, including Syria uh, and Libya, and and this uh, this has to do with quite a number of things, but it, it certainly um, it, it certainly points to a, a process of of uh, disabling of uh, of the of of dissent within within society. Yeah, so it doesn't sound very optimistic. Okay. <laughs> Professor Chostodovsky, uh, I've, I, and just one more point is the, the address. Uh, I know that the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth have been pushing for a new uh, independent investigation. Um, do you have any concerns about the effectiveness of that approach? Well, I certainly favor the idea of a new uh, independent investigation, but I certainly would – I would – be reluctant 
to petition the government of the United States of America in, in commissioning a new 9-11 investigation because official investigations will invariably lead to a cover-up. Ironically, there are a number of people who were connected with official investigations, including uh, uh, former New Jersey Governor Thomas Keene um, and, and his, his co-chair, who are now proposing a new investigation. Uh, Representative uh, Porter Goss, as well as former Senator Bob Graham, are also proposing uh, the holding of a new investigation. And at the same time, there's another dimension, um, and this um, has to do with the fact that the original 9-11 report, uh, chaired by Thomas Keene, has certain sections which have remained classified. And Thomas Keene has said we should release those classified uh, pages of, of the 9-11 report. But this, uh, this issue is a red herring because everybody knows what is contained in those, uh, uh, those classified pages. What is contained in those classified pages is an examination of the role of Saudi Arabia in the 9-11 attacks. Now, Saudi Arabia is the financier of al-Qaeda, and uh, to, to in, in effect, to divert attention, what members of the uh, U.S. establishment are doing, including people who are most probably complicit in the 9-11 attacks, directly or indirectly, or who have certainly knowledge of the, of the conspiracy. Well, what they're doing now is they're saying um, it's not bin Laden who was behind it. It was Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is, is funding bin Laden. But what that line of argument suggests is that um, it is not the United States which is behind the attacks, Okay, this is not a false flag attack from within. It diverts attention from the, the, the issue of controlled demolition, which proves that, first of all, it's, it's a complex engineering intelligence operation, which could not have been undertaken by al-Qaeda. But what is more, it, it brings in a new dimension, uh, which serves as a scapegoat to the U.S. government, namely, we are not responsible for al-Qaeda, it is Saudi Arabia who is responsible for al-Qaeda. And so the al-Qaeda legend is perpetuated, and now with a new element that Saudi Arabia is behind, uh, behind al-Qaeda. And of course there is another dimension to that, because uh, there may be at some future date uh, a foreign policy thrust which considers that the Saudi monarchy uh, is too powerful and is not serving U.S. interests in the way it should, and there is need for some form of regime change in Saudi Arabia. This is something which could emerge precisely from a, from a shift in the thrust of, of uh, so-called of, of 9-11 investigation, bringing in 
Saudi Arabia as the as as being the the financiers of the 9/11 attack. Something which, in fact, has been envisaged in in some of the lawsuits waged by the families of the victims. So basically what you're saying is if we have a 9-11 investigation that's authorized by the state, number one, it'll be a cover-up. Number two, it's being geared towards creating a, a you know, creating a different uh, pretext for some other operation, and effectively the, the demand for the truth is going to be co-opted. Well, precisely. I, I think the truth is, is, is there that in the course of the last 13 years, there's been so much investigation by, by researchers, analysts, architects, engineers, <coughs> which could be, could be the object of an you know, of a, of a extensive and authoritative report. <coughs> this report, however, does not, would not be able to address the, the 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 people who are actually behind the conspiracy. So I think what we do need, we need an in, independent investigation, which is not sponsored by the U.S. government, because the U.S. government is a suspect in this in this undertaking. And secondly, we need a police investigation. And there, that is a much more difficult thing to achieve because the police, again, is also controlled by the U.S. government. But we need a, a police investigation because we're dealing with a criminal undertaking. And <clears throat> those people who are responsible have to be, have to be investigated and, and indicted. Uh, and uh, since we're mo most likely dealing with crimes committed Within the state, U.S. state apparatus, this is not something which is uh, which is easily implemented. Okay. Well, um, Michelle Chosodovsky, I, I thank you very much for for sharing those uh, perspectives with us on the occasion of the 13th anniversary of the 9/11 attacks. Um, I wish you the best for the the website as we go forward in the uh, months and years to come. That. Uh, as you say, the, the consensus can be broken. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Michelle Chosodovsky is the professor of economics at the emeritus professor of economics at the University of Ottawa and director of the Center for Research on Globalization and an award-winning author. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.